when you're traveling, and this is going to be out-of-state traveling, and you're in the hills, and you're in the mountains, and you see a sign that says, Scenic Overlook. Even if you are rushing to make it to your hotel before they cancel the reservation or something like that, don't you hate to just drive by that kind of sign? I mean, it kills me to do that. Man, I want to pull over and I want to see whatever view is being advertised. I mean, who doesn't love a beautiful view? In July of 2001, Shri and I got married and we went out to Vancouver Island, which is in British Columbia, Canada, one of the best places on earth. I'm not just talking about Canada generally, although that's true. <laughs> I'm talking about Vancouver Island specifically. A beautiful place. And so one night we stayed at this uh, roadside motel called the Ocean View. Now the motel wasn't much to look at, but I had seen pictures online of, of the view that they had and I was pretty excited about it. It was uh, perched on top of this this great height overlooking this this watery inlet, one of many on the island. And um, you could see clear to the, the tree-filled heights on the other side. It was going to be something else. When we got there in the evening, the whole inlet was just blanketed with a, a thick fog, and we couldn't see a thing. You know, the scriptures give to us a whole series of vantage points from which to get a view of Jesus. When we go into the Old Testament, those vantage points are from a great distance away, and we see the glow, the glow of His glory on the horizon, when we get into the New Testament for these vantage points, we are brought up close and personal to the dazzling brightness of Jesus. But no single vantage point captures the whole vision of his glory. Together, interconnected, those views give us the most beautiful sight that the eyes of man's heart have ever seen. Because He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, God's Son, is the brightness of His glory. And if you are unmoved at Christ, you don't see Him. No one who can see is unmoved. Well, the next morning that after our night stay, Shri and I got up and we were greeted by a beautiful, clear blue sky and a, a piercing view down to this inlet hundreds of feet below us and boats and everything moving through. It was a, it was a beautiful sight. The specific overlook that I want to bring you to today is one that you have visited in the Bible, in the Gospels, many times before. In fact, I would say almost as many times as you have been in the Gospels, you have come to this overlook. You have come to this vantage point. This particular vantage point is Jesus as the Son of Man. And I bring you back here kind of as a guide to explain the view and help you to see things a little bit better I bring you back here knowing you have been here many times before, but also knowing that probably many of you have not seen all that there is to see in Jesus as the Son of Man. 
I'm not saying we can ever see all there is to see of Jesus on this side of glory as the Son of Man, or, or really, honestly, even in eternity, because He is infinite and He is inexhaustible, and there will always be more of Him to see. But I think for many of us, we consider Jesus as the Son of Man and see Him as the Son of Man purely from the human aspect of it. And we need to see more. We must see more. Now, as I serve as a kind of guide this morning, I'm not going to pretend that my explanation can ever do this view justice. I cannot do Jesus justice. And I cannot promise you that all of you here are going to see glory. But if you do, and that is my prayer, my prayer that you will see glory. If you see the glory of the Son of Man in Jesus, you will be pleased. I can promise you that. And you will be compelled, irresistibly, to bow down and worship Him. Behold your God, is what I'm saying to you this morning. Behold your God, the Son of Man. Okay, Son of Man is the most frequently used title for Jesus in the Gospels. Let me put it in this perspective. The Son of God is a title applied to Jesus 30 times in the Gospels, and the title Son of Man is applied to Jesus nearly 80 times. So if your Lord identified himself as the Son of Man more than by any other name or title, then we must... It is crucial that we uncover from the scriptures what this title signifies. Let me put it like this. Once the Sanhedrin, Israel's ruling religious council, understood what Jesus meant by taking on this name, they had him put to death. It's why they put him to death. Because he claimed to be the Son of Man. Stephen, on the other hand, understood it. And when the heavens were opened and he saw Jesus as the Son of Man, he was gladly put to death for him. So this is what how heavy, how weighty this name is. That the enemies of Jesus put him to death for taking on this name. And the followers of Jesus were put to death themselves for this name. From Genesis to Ezekiel, this name is used 105 times. What what does Son of Man mean in its most basic sense? It's just a poetic kind of way to speak of a man's humanness. Right? So if you hear someone referred to as Son of Man, it is simply speaking in a poetic way of their humanity. Now the Lord often used this title when addressing the prophet Ezekiel. So, again, from Genesis to Ezekiel, Son of Man is used 105 times simply to speak of a man's humanness. So the name itself is not something worth dying for. The name Son of Man is certainly not worth killing someone over. And we so often miss the magnitude of the name and the magnitude of the man who bears that name simply because that's all we understand by the title, humanness. 
That's what we think when we hear Son of Man. We think Son of God, deity. Son of Man, humanity. And that's it. And so we're unmoved and we don't understand. We're not compelled to worship Jesus at any magnitude that this name bears. Then after Ezekiel, something changed. Ezekiel had a contemporary whose name was Daniel. And after Ezekiel died, Daniel used the title Son of Man. And after Daniel, except for one passage in the New Testament, quoting the Old, the Bible never again uses the name Son of Man to refer to anyone else but one specific individual. So used many uh, times, different periods of history to refer to any man. But after Daniel, it only refers to one specific individual in the biblical sense. And this happens in Daniel 7. In this chapter, the prophet is given an apocalyptic vision of the kingdoms of history. If you just scan over the first several verses, I'm not going to take the time to read them, but you'll see that Daniel envisions four kingdoms rising up out of the sea, and the sea representing the darkness and the chaos of evil. The first kingdom is visualized as a lion with eagle's wings. The second kingdom is symbolized as a bear on the rampage. The third kingdom is a leopard with four heads and four wings. And I know this sounds strange. This is why it's called apocalyptic. But the fourth kingdom cannot be named by any creature or beast that we are familiar with because this kingdom is unlike anything that we've ever seen. To be nearly inexplicable, it has terrifying power. Daniel describes these great iron teeth devouring and breaking everything in pieces and stamping out everything in its path. So that first kingdom is Babylon, succeeded in history by the kingdom of Persia, succeeded by the great empire of Greece, and all of them overwhelmed eventually by the power of Rome, which Daniel uses to represent all the worldly powers to come. Not only Rome, the Roman Empire itself, but it represents all the powers to come, finally even giving rise to the terrifying Antichrist who will make war against the people of God and prevail over them for a time. Now in the midst of recounting the rise and the fall of these beasts and the terrifying war against the people of God, Daniel says that he sees the Ancient of Days in glory come to his throne and take his seat. He says his clothing is white as snow and his hair like pure wool and his throne burns with fire. Fiery flames, the flames of God's wrath. It is time for judgment. And then this in Daniel 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Did you get that? He came to the ancient of days with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Him, 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So who is this one called Son of Man? Well, certainly He is human because the title itself in its most basic sense speaks of an individual's humanness. So He's human. But clearly He is more than merely human. And if Son of Man simply signifies humanness, then the title itself doesn't distinguish Him from me. The title wouldn't signify any distinction between Him and me if it only speaks of humanness. But the glory of the Son of Man is brighter than this. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Clearly, this is a prophecy of God's chosen one, His anointed King, whose dominion is everlasting and over all things. So all of that glory, all of the glory of Christ, Messiah, anointed one, King, dominion that is forever, all of that glory is bound up in this title, the Son of Man. So when Jesus uses this title for Himself, and again, He uses that name more than any other by which to identify himself, when Jesus uses it, he is saying all that glory is bound up in him. Messiah, Christ, the chosen one, God's anointed king, the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the might and honor and glory and blessing belongs to him because he is the son of man. Jesus is the one who comes in the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days and receives from the Father all dominion and glory and the kingdom. So what we need to do now is look at some New Testament passages where Jesus uses this title so we can see how all of this unfolds in Christ, is fulfilled in Him. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 5. And of course, the title being used nearly 80 times, we could go to a lot of passages. But let's start with John 5. Let me do a quick recap. The title itself, Son of Man, simply means, on a basic level, humanness. And that's the way the Bible uses it until Daniel 7. And after that, it doesn't simply mean humanness in general or speak to different men. It's always applied to one specific individual. And we find Jesus being the one to take on that name. In John's Gospel, the title Son of God is used nine times. And the title Son of Man is used twelve times. Again, in our minds, as we just go through the Scriptures, we are inclined to keep these titles separate, right? If I, if I said to you, what does Son of God mean? It means that Jesus is deity. And if I said, what does Son of Man mean? We would say, okay, well, that's different. It speaks to His humanity. But if you look in John 5, at verses 25 to 27, we find that Jesus actually uses these titles in juxtaposition to reveal to us unrivaled authority. All right, let's read these together. Verse 25 again, John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now here 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So they're Son of God. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. If Son of Man simply speaks that he is human, then Jesus would not have said what he did in John 5.27. Again, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the Son of God who raises up the dead by the word of his power is the Son who has life in himself, is the Son of Man who has all authority to execute judgment on the Father's behalf because he is the Son of Man. Both of these titles, Son of God, Son of Man, speak to the great authority of Jesus. What is Jesus saying? Jesus clearly has in mind Daniel chapter 7. He is the one presented to the Ancient of Days who receives dominion and glory and a kingdom. By virtue of that fact, he has the authority to execute judgment. But this is not all. I won't have you turn there, but we're going to talk about Luke chapter 5. See, today's sermon was actually supposed to be simply an introduction to Luke 5, verses 33 to 39. Because we have already seen the first use of Son of Man in the Gospels, and it was kind of like scenic overlook right here, and I just drove on by without stopping. Well, now we need to retrace. And so I wanted to, I told you last week I needed to explain this more, and this was just going to be an introduction, but it quickly Friday morning turned into sermon length, and I'm I try to be flexible, so that's what we have today. In Luke 4 and 5, we have been seeing that Jesus' words reveal this unrivaled authority. His words, right? It's just his word. For It feels like the millionth time now, I'm going to say it again, that he says, and what he says does. Man does not have this power. He says, be, and it is. He commands and it happens. His word works wonders. And then in Luke 5, two paragraphs ago from uh, where we would have been today in verse 33 and following, two paragraphs ago, we saw this, this paralyzed man lowered down to Jesus through the vandalized roof. And, and Jesus looks up and he sees the faith of all of these men, the paralytic and his four buddies up top. And he says, man, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders who are on hand have a hissy fit, except it's all on the inside. And Jesus reads their fit and he says to them, Luke 5.24, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Let us, let's put those two passages together. John 5 and Luke 5. Jesus has all the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, and that makes sense, doesn't it? 
Well, he was the one who came to the Ancient of Days and received dominion and glory and a kingdom. Of course, he's going to have authority to judge. But when Jesus comes, he gives the stunning announcement that as the Son of Man, not only does he judge, but he is here and he is now to forgive. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the good news. That's the stunning announcement of the gospel. That the Son of Man is here not to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Luke 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now going back to Daniel 7 and what we know foundationally about the Son of Man, who he will be and what he was going to do, this is a surprise. This is stunning and this is awesome. And this is the best news that ever could have been heard, that the Son of Man forgives sin. So, to, to sum that up, Jesus has all the authority to be the judge of our sins in the end because He is the Son of Man. And He has all authority to forgive sin here and now for all who hope in His name because He is the Son of of man. Turn to Luke 9. In Luke 9, we find Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, is how we usually pronounce it. Probably, we should uh, pronounce it Caesarea Philippi. This town is very significant, the name of it anyway, is quite significant for what Jesus is about to reveal. If you think about it, the town is doubly royal named. Caesarea Philippi. It's named after the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, and it's named after Herod Philip, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. So I think this was a deliberate choice on Jesus' part to question the disciples and to pull from the disciples who he is as the Son of Man. Because what does the name Son of Man mean? It means He is royalty. His is the dominion. His is the glory. And His is the kingdom. So a perfect setting to pull out who He is as the Son of Man. The place where the worldly rulers are named and identified. Matthew 16. Jesus puts the question to His disciples. and I, Yes, I'm coming to Luke. But in Matthew 16, the question is framed like this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the answer is that people think that the Son of Man is a prophet. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other greats. Hmm. That's not good enough. Jesus says in Luke 9.20, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, at the end of verse 20 there, the Christ of God. Who is the Son of Man? Not a mere man. Even though the, the title sounds like humanness, he is more. Peter knows it. God has revealed it to him. He is the Christ of God. And Jesus replies to that in verse 22. Follow along as I read. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And we know that this revelation does not compute with the disciples at all because they see Jesus as the Son of Man in Daniel 7 terms. His is the glory. His is the dominion. His is the kingdom. He's going to reign over all things forever. His enemies cannot compare to Him. No power rivals His. So the Son of Man suffering, the Son of Man rejected, the Son of Man killed, that doesn't compute with them. It can't be. It won't be. They try to put their foot down. But look at what Jesus says in verse 23. He goes on, using Daniel 7-like terms to say that if anyone would follow after this Son of Man, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The Son of Man is given the dominion and the glory and the kingdom. And he dies that you and I might be citizens of that kingdom and heirs with him and reign with him. He dies that you and I might reign in the kingdom which the Father gives to him. How could we deny him? How could we ever deny the one who died that we might be not only included, might not only have a part, but reign with him forever? Look at verse 27. He still has his Son of Man honor. He still has his Son of Man glory in view when he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the Son of Man has been identified. He is more than a man. He is the Christ of God. He will come again with great glory. So let's see it. Eight days after... Jesus goes up into the mountain with Peter and James and John. And it says he went there to pray. And as he was praying, look down at verse uh, 28 and 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The prophets Moses and Elijah appear and Peter offers to honor the three heroes. Look at verse 34. But as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. So easy to miss the significance of this. Put it together. Jesus has said, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They're only saying a prophet. Who is he truly? He is the Christ of God. And when he comes in his glory, he will honor those who have honored him. And now his Son of Man glory is revealed. And what do you know? Here is a cloud. Remember how he came to the Ancient of Days with the clouds of heaven, the glory clouds. And now he is enveloped in that glory cloud as his glory is unveiled. And the Ancient of Days speaks 
and says, This is my son, my chosen one. Son of man is not merely a human title, and he is more than a prophet. He is God's son. He is the chosen one to whom belongs all the glory and all the honor. And he has shown to us that the way for him to receive this crown and this kingdom is by the cross. So let's move to Mark 14. From the height of his glory, earthly glory in Galilee, on the Mount of Transfiguration, let's move to the depth of his humiliation on that fateful Friday. He's in Jerusalem now. And he is on trial before the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council of the nation. They bring many witnesses forward. And they all testify, trying to implicate Jesus of this and that. But all of the testimony is contradictory. And so the Sanhedrin is frustrated. They're also frustrated by Jesus simply being silent the whole time. All of the accusations, he doesn't say a word. He doesn't object, he doesn't protest, he doesn't try to defend himself. And so the Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, the high priest, asks him plainly, Mark 14, verse 61, Caiaphas asks him straight, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answers, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is this? These men, this council was not biblically ignorant, even if they didn't believe. They now were very clear about what Jesus meant by taking on this name, Son of Man. It says, verse 63, that Caiaphas then tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They know that Jesus means that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man that Daniel had seen, the King of everlasting glory. It says, and they all condemned him as deserving death. And some of them began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, and I'm going to pull from Matthew 26, they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Because Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. His enemies had him put to death. I want us to turn to Acts now, chapter 7. This is Luke's second volume of New Testament writing. The events take place after the resurrection of Jesus and after his ascension to the Father's right hand. Do you remember the apostles committed to the preaching of the word and prayer? And so as various needs presented themselves in the early church, they decided they must not leave their sacred task of the word and prayer. And so they had the congregation of Jerusalem choose from among them seven men of good report who were filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And their first choice was Stephen. Stephen was not only a faithful servant deacon in the church, 
He was also a powerful preacher. This is what he preaches at the end of his sermon, verse 52. He says, okay, so he's preaching Jesus and he's seized. He's seized. He's arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, the very same council that had put Jesus to death not long before. And he says to them in verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is the very claim that the Sanhedrin had just put Jesus to death for. Now Stephen says the same. He sees him standing at the right hand of God, Daniel's Son of Man. But they cried out with a loud voice. They can't stand it. And they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. There's that quick word about Saul. And then it says in verse 54, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Behold your God, the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is more than a man. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is God's chosen. He is the anointed King over all for all time. And all of that glory is bound up in that title, Son of Man. All of that glory is bound up in the one who identified by himself by Son of Man more than by any other name. All the glory is bound up in Christ, in Jesus, in Galilee. He declared himself to be the Son of Man and his glory was revealed. In Jerusalem, he declared himself to be the Son of Man and he was crucified and his glory was revealed. Those who see the glory of the Son of Man in Jesus deny themselves. Those who see the glory of the Son of Man in Jesus will take up their cross and they will follow him faithfully. He has ascended into heaven now, triumphant. And he is waiting for the word 
to come back. I want to close with one more word of Jesus, one of the 80 times that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He said in Luke 18, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? If he came today in all the glory of the Son of Man to be marveled at among all those who believe, would he find faith in you? Every time you come across this title, Son of Man, in the Gospels, think in Daniel 7 terms. All the authority, all the glory, dominion, kingdom is his. This is what it means. And it's all bound up in Jesus. I can't promise you. I can't be sure that you have seen glory today. But if you see the glory of the Son of Man in Jesus, your heart will be moved. Your heart will be pleased. And you will be compelled to worship Him again. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we bow our hearts before you, Lord. Thankful. Submitted, surrendered, worshiping. Today, Father, I've wanted to see Jesus exalted in my heart, in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here. I know, Father, that my explanation of Christ has fallen short. I have no doubt. He is far more than I could ever say, infinitely more than I have the words to say. But I, I do pray, Father, that those who are here would, would see Him despite me, would see the glory of Jesus as the Son of Man better now, despite my lacking and insufficiency. Lord, if we will see it is by your power and your opening of our eyes. So Father, take this word and, and even if someone has not seen glory in these last 45 minutes, I pray that the seed of God would remain in their hearts and it would yet take root. I pray that they would give this word further meditation and thought. They would water it. Water the Word, and it would bring forth fruit. Thank you, Father, for your Son, who is Son of God and Son of Man, who has all the authority, glory, dominion, and the kingdom, the one that will never be destroyed. Every kingdom of this world will be shaken, but you have made us citizens and heirs of the kingdom that will never be shaken. May Jesus, our great King, come soon to claim His kingdom and His throne and to make everything right on this earth. May we be faithful until He does. In His name we pray. Amen.